Welcome to Ask the Chief Information Officer on federalnewsradio.com and 1500 AM. Now your host, Jason Miller. Welcome to the show. Today we continue our look at how the U.S. Digital Service is helping agencies modernize their legacy systems. In honor of Small Business Week, we focus on the Small Business Administration's effort to modernize certified.sba.gov, which will replace the current legacy systems, eliminate paper and mail-based applications, and create a more efficient process to determine small business eligibility for programs such as 8A, Women-Owned Small Business, and the HubZone program. My guests are Rick Lee, the Deputy Team Lead for the SBA Projects for USDS, and Alberto Colon-Vieira, a USDS Digital Service Engineer and Product Owner for the HubZone application. I sat down with Rick Lee and Alberto Colon-Vieira in our studios in Washington to talk more about USDS's efforts with SBA. Rick Alberto, thanks for taking the time. This is part of an ongoing discussion we're having with the U.S. Digital Services uh, based on the report to Congress, but really looking at how you guys are modernizing and helping agencies modernize specific systems, specific applications to really meet the citizens out where they are and, and to improve the overall experience. L- let me start with the work you guys are doing at the Small Business Administration. This is one project that cuts across several different major programs at SBA. So maybe, Rick, lead us off. Talk a little bit about the work you're doing with SBA and give us some initial background. USDS was called in to modernize the application and case management business processes for the um, GCBD program uh, as part of a, a SBA. Uh, GCBD is the uh, Government Contracting and Business Development Division. They deal with programs such as 8A, uh, the, the Women-Owned Small Business Program, the HubZone Program, and the All Small Mentor-Protege Program. And each of those programs had uh, various states of modernization in terms of managing their, their caseloads, accepting applications from firms, but generally most program actions still required a paper process of some sort. In a lot of cases, it was extreme. So, for instance, a, a firm applying to the 8A program might have to submit up to 2,500 pages worth of documentation and application just to be admitted into the program. The burden was was extremely heavy to the degree that um, a cottage industry had sort of sprung up around helping firms apply. Firms could hire consulting firms that would help them apply to these programs. And that would be no guarantee that they'd actually get into the program. So our effort uh, was to digitize these processes. So far, certify.spa.gov, which is the, the, the project itself, has rolled out in production applications and case management for uh, the Women-Owned Small Business Program, the All Small Mentor-Protege Program, and more recently, the 8A program. It's amazing, 2,500 pages. That just seems unwieldy. And, and how do you put it all together? How do you review it? So when you walked in, was this one of those projects that you just couldn't believe your eyes? Or or did you know what you're getting into as, as SB, when SBA called? No, I mean, I, I think I think we had ideas of what we were getting into, honestly. A lot of the work that we do at USDS is, is this type of modernization. So being called into this, I don't think it was a complete surprise. Also, USDS operates with by doing disco- what we call discovery sprints, which are basically two-week engagements where a, uh, an advanced team goes out, meets with the agency, scopes the projects, and comes back to headquarters with a, with a report, you know, recommendations. How can we work with this agency? What can we do? So we, we had some intel and knew what we were kind of getting into. But the minute we stepped into the district office, which is in the, in the, on the second floor of the Washington, D.C. building, there were just stacks of, of papers and, and manila folders many folders deep with rubber bands wrapped around them and and, uh, 
yeah, I mean, it's, it was pretty overwhelming. Alberto, jump in here a little bit. When you guys, when you got on the project and you're helping out, what's your role with the project? Are you looking at, as an engineer, the, the tech side? And is compared to maybe Rick's looking at the user experience side or talk about your role? Connecting to what Rick was saying, USDS engaged in this project at SVA at different phases. So initially there was a discovery sprint. Later there was part of our procurement team that helped SVA do some more modern procurement techniques and have like an agile software development contract in place. I was the second member of this team uh, by that time uh, from the USDS at the after procurement. And it was uh, just providing support and guidance and advising on technical matters. Afterwards, there was a clear need to start working on some of these programs uh, in parallel so we can make more progress and faster. Uh, and that's when the team started growing and then transitioned and became engineer working on the HubZone program, doing some discovery there and leading the as product owner with the new contracted team. When you talk about the modernization of the contracting, SBA was, were they in the middle of trying to modernize these these case management and application systems, and they were using, if you will, the old waterfall approach, or were they not doing anything and, and they were just, they had that old view of throw the requirements over the fence and hope something works? As we learn afterwards uh, during the process, there has been multiple attempts to modernize these legacy systems. Every program has like their own system or more than one system actually. So there's a, like around, wow, I don't even know the count today, but it's like around 10 systems all put together that were used for just us for these four programs. And yeah, some of them failed. And, and were you, were, were they not in the agile world yet? And you helped them get to agile and understand how it works. Is that, was that part of your role initially? Yes. It, like our, the role of our team was moving to agile and supporting a better agile practice within SBA. And some of the efforts that fell before, most of them had the waterfall approach. Rick, you're nodding your head a little bit too. Uh, this is probably the biggest change that SBA initially had to come up with. Not not just getting off that paper, the diet of paper, but change the, the way that they approach the pro program and projects. Yeah, I mean, this is really a, a sea change from a cultural level, right? I mean, the, Alberto mentioned the procurement uh, that was required to just get into this. And then, you know, the, the contractors and the contract, the first uh, contract that we worked on had to be specially structured to allow for agile development. And that agile development now has trickled down into uh, SBA now has their own project management group that's running other IT projects in an agile environment. Um, one of the other things that we introduced by this program was this application is all cloud-based. So we were one of the first, SBA was one of the first agencies using AWS. That was another cultural shift that we were able to help them with. And now they're actually serving as a pilot program for a Microsoft Azure enterprise implementation. So it's been rewarding and, and we're actually seeing a, a lot of movement. One of the big benefits you guys had going to SBA was, number one, they needed serious help. We, we got that. <laughs> you had the, way, the way, Rick, you described the current the application process. But you also had a CIO in there, Maria Rote, who wanted to jump in with both feet, both toes, go more than just, you know, a lot of CIOs talk about going, you know, dip their foot into Agile or dip their foot into the cloud. She wanted to go waist deep, or if not, you know, shoulder deep into the cloud. Was that one of the biggest differences that maybe, as you've talked to other people across USDS, that, that why you guys maybe were able to make so much progress so quickly? Yeah, Maria's been a huge advocate for, for the work that we've been doing there. She's been extremely helpful and supportive of everything that we've been doing over there. And I think, I think we're complementing each other very well, the USDS team and the, the vision that she has from a CIO shop perspective. And the fact that she had done some at cloud at transportation when she came over to SBA, 
if you brought her an idea or if you guys met and hey we have an idea to do this take you know use agile in the cloud using aws you didn't get that well you probably didn't get that at first you know at all you she probably was like okay sounds good just make sure it's secure go so in reality, we actually predated our, this project predated Maria's time at, at SBA, but she was uh, gave us her full throated support when she did come on. Right, I know that's always helpful. I know I talked to her predecessor as well, who was uh, I think it was Keith Bluestein, or was also looking at the cloud. So I know that there's been a series of CIOs there. So once you, you guys got started, you talked about the women-owned business hub zone eight A or the first three that have rolled out. What was the effort to get them going? Like, talk, walk me maybe through the modernization effort a little bit. And each one's different. I know that, but I imagine you're not you didn't build three case management systems, three application systems. You probably built one with with a new skin on top. We did, and honestly, this all started. It really started on the business side. One of the primary goals is to reduce burden for firms that want to apply to these programs. So the first thing that we we did was we took a look at the applications and the application process themselves. Formerly, they have a very IRS style or any other federal government style of forms, right? There's 1010 IND forms and 1010 biz forms and, and the lot. We went through and did an audit of all of the questions that all of the programs are asking and not only leveled them across the program so that firms can don't have to be submitting multiple duplicative data points to apply for programs, but also to rework them from a plain language perspective. There are some really good instances that I can I can follow up with later if you're interested of ways that we took just the questionnaires out of government ease and just turned them into plain language. We One of the results was, you know, are you the highest paid employee in, in your firm from, please describe the highest level compensation employee that is employed Kind it's, of, kind it's, of stuff. it's the it's the gobbledygook that some lawyer wrote yeah exactly. and versus a regular person but um one of the things you did you guys do is you talk to the users is that where you guys started with this project where you went and talked to companies in the women-owned business program men and women in the 8a program user-centered design is is one of our primary values we have six values that we we essentially apply to every everything that we do and um reaching out talking to firms talking to people we employ that throughout the entire life cycle of every development effort that we do to varying degrees, right? I mean, some some pieces aren't going to get as heavily tested as others, um, but that user input is is critical in, in our success. Alberto, jump in a little bit. When you talk from your perspective, once you got the contract in place and you were able to kind of begin the, the work, what was the engineering feat that you had to accomplish? Most of the challenges at SVA has been more like dealing with the legacy systems and understanding uh, systems that have been kind of unsupported for, for some time and, and some older technologies. Are we talking about, for instance, like mainframes or just talking about old client server or yes? I mean, there's uh, multiple systems involved. Some of them are like cold fusion applications. Others are unknown systems. I, I, others, I don't know what they were built on. But I started working on the Hubzone program, mostly starting with the geospatial components. So we wanted to be able to integrate with Certify and like the questionnaire, the case management engine and everything we were building. So when I started the Hubzone program, we basically came up with building APIs and microservices to to get ready and be available for, for the case management system. And we deprecated uh, some of those systems, right, as we were modernizing and building the new replacements. So this is a great example of you're able to turn off the old systems and what when the new ones came up. Yes, it has been easier said than done. There's a lot of user transitions you gotta do, uh, some technologies that need to be properly documented at the agency level. But yes, that's the goal of what we're trying to achieve. We're trying to 
at the end of the project, be able to decommission all of the systems, right, that are no longer required. Rick, when you guys were started, you went through the user-centered design piece, you talked to the users. Did you guys find that overall the the questions were 80% the same across these programs, 90% the same? G give me a sense of how much work, once you kind of decided what the questions were and put them in plain language, how much difference was there between all the programs? To answer that question, I have to actually take a step back from that. So. Um, we also integrate with SAM.gov. So as part of the burden reduction for the firms, there's most uh, we identified a lot of information that's duplicative of what's already in SAM.gov. So the first wave of burden reduction is really based around that integration. So we, we um, take a dump from SAM.gov and we um, populate that, and that serves to answer you know probably a minimum of 10% of any given applicant's information because it's basic stuff. It's It's... What's your phone number? What's your address? You know, what's your primary NAICS code? What are your secondary NAICS codes? Et cetera, et cetera. So that, that's sort of the first wave. In terms of the, the quantity of information, the duplicative information that we've been able to reduce, I would say, you know, we're probably looking at 50% common, but it really varies from program to program. The 8A program, for instance, is a, it's a really business development program. It's not a contracting program. So um, it requires a lot more information to be gathered and, and evaluated. Whereas, say, the WOSB program is a self-certification. And I think the entire WOSB questionnaire is like 20 questions. But um, we, we've identified areas where if you if you complete the WOSB questionnaire and you are qualified for that program, yeah, you're you know, more than halfway on your 8A application. And in fact, if, if you are an 8A participant, the first question on the WOSB questionnaire is, are you an 8A qualified firm? If so, upload your 8A certificate, you're done. So that's a significant burden reduction. Across the board, and just to be clear, when you say "woes be," it's the women-owned small business yeah, program. Sorry. No worries, women-owned small business. You, you did that at the beginning too with the GD, GD, GCBD. GCBD. Yeah, yeah. But yeah. we got it. We're, we're, we'll keep we'll keep you straight. Don't worry. <clears throat> well, I think that's incredible that you, you can simplify it that much. I mean, I think that's the true test of what a modernization effort is really about is is taking the the legacy clunky, arduous, and, and make it easier. I mean, it, that that is in, in in the end part of the end goal, correct? It is. I mean, and we have some. We have a few numbers on that too. The we did a baseline study um, on the the previous ADA application process, um, and the average uh, burden for a firm to apply was about 120 hours. We reduced that to down to what we believe to be about maybe 20 hours of information gathering time, and we have validated numbers on. We have a couple of applicants who submitted their applications one in 34 minutes and one in 45 minutes. So, granted, those are very well prepared um, organizations, but but we're very pleased with the results so far. Well, yeah, it's a huge difference—120 hours down to 45 minutes. Now, I know that's an exception, not the rule, but still, it shows you the, the the realm of possibility. The other thing you mentioned that was I thought was very interesting was around the integration with SAM.gov. Now, uh, System Forward Management—it's one of GSA's systems that where every contractor must register. Give me a sense about the difficulty in that because the 18F folks GSA is trying to modernize that at the same time. Yeah, so we're working with the we're working with the legacy system. Um, we're, we've been in contact with the, the mod, their modernization effort as well, but it's it's pretty straightforward. Really, really, we require that a firm have an active profile in SAM. It, once they've gone through that process with SAM, we know that we have all the information we need. It's a it's a simple integration. The firm comes and. And does a uh, they set up a user account? They associate that with their SAM record, and it's done. I mean, it's almost like it's an automatic pull. It is, it yeah. is, and that keeps the data consistent from SAM to certify, 
and in, we enforce that active record. So if if their SAM record goes um, inactive for any reason, they they need to update it to get access back into Certify. Or if somebody fished them and took their uh, information. That's uh, a whole different discussion. I know that. We have to take a break. My guests are Rick Lee, the deputy team lead for the SBA project for USDS, and Alberto Colon Vieira, a USDS digital service engineer and product owner for the HubZone application. This is a special edition of Ask the CIO. In honor of Small Business Week, we're focusing on the Small Business Administration's effort to modernize certified.sba.gov. I'm Jason Miller. You're listening to Ask the CIO on federalnewsradio.com and 1500 AM. Welcome back. You're listening to a special edition of Ask the CIO on federalnewsradio.com and 1500 AM. I'm your host, Jason Miller. This special show is part of our recognition of Small Business Week, where we talk about the Small Business Administration's effort to modernize certified.sba.gov. My guests are Rick Lee, the Deputy Team Lead for the Small Business Administration Project for the U.S. Digital Service, and Alberto Colon Vieira, a USDS Digital Service Engineer and Product Owner for the HubZone application. The back-end technology side of the case management, it's in the cloud, it's in AWS. How difficult of a technology challenge was this from a technology perspective? Maybe Alberto jump in here a little bit. The challenge has been, honestly, adopting some modern technologies. As you mentioned earlier, Maria has been a great supporter of our project. So we've been using more modern technologies. She's, she jumped into the CIO seat. We've been using like automation at all levels to make this a robust, scalable infrastructure and system. And that's, I don't know if we want to get into the details, right? Well, just a little bit, maybe to give us a high level, like don't, don't bits and bites me to death, but you know, okay. give, give me some perspective of what went into, because case management systems, and, and maybe this is where I should have gone with the question, are hard. Like the Justice Department, the FBI, they had a huge struggle in the mid to late 2000s, early 2010s. You've seen case management struggles at CBP, at USCIS. You've seen case management struggles almost at every agency. So when you guys talk about building a case management system, okay. my first was like, uh-oh, Rick, jump in before Alberto gets going with the bits and bytes. <laughs> yeah, so one of the things that makes makes these systems very difficult to deploy is is the business logic that's required to, to transit cases through that management process. We can ask OPM about that later. Yeah, exactly, exactly. Or, yeah. Or anybody else. Equip, maybe, is a good example. (laughs) And one of the the primary best practices that we put in into this from the start was to simplify instead of add complexity. One of the luxuries that we have with SBA is it's a fairly small ecosystem. Everybody knows each other, and there aren't a whole lot of consequences for a case being misrouted. So we were able to limit the amount of business logic that's built into the workflows and allow manual referrals and reassignment of cases and manual transit across that entire workflow, which sounds simplistic. And it is, right? So part of our premise here is to too is to work in an MVP environment. We're working we're trying very hard to deliver value very quickly and very iteratively. And this was one way for us to get there fast by by omitting the business logic that normally goes into a very robust case management system, we could get this thing deployed very quickly. We've been also uh, applying the lessons we learned when we do each of these programs, right? So that's part of the incremental value we've been adding. So there's a lot we have learned since we did WASP, then uh, the Women All Small Business, then the Mentor Project, and now with EDA. And as we move towards HumSub, so we have a lot of best practices and and good experiences and and errors that we need to avoid just to make the user experience uh, better. You know, my next question is, Alberto, what are some of those best practices? Because as other CIOs and others listen to this discussion, they want to know, okay, what do I do? 
what have I been doing wrong or what, should, what potholes should I watch out from stepping in? So these lessons are coming from different places. One is our help desk. Our help desk provided a lot of information about things we needed to improve, like on logging and other concepts and components in the system. Also, our design team deserves like a big, great kudos here because they've been working very hard to test with users, get feedback, do some design enhancements, and, and continue to improve the, the system. And we have adopted slowly as possible, right? Taking into consideration like the budget constraints, the timeframes, and the need to get on the market, like release to the product to users. We've been adopting those improvements. So one of the things about login as an example, I, I know that that's been the username and password piece. Have you guys added advanced login, like two-factor authentication as an example to this, or is that maybe on the horizon? So that's on the horizon. So we're working on some improvements to our login experience and to our SAM integration. We're looking, hopefully, to integrate those at some point down the road this year or next year. And I'm sure your friends at GSA would love to tell you all about login.gov and why you should use that. I'm sure that's the other piece of it. So SBA has adopted login.gov as a platform. So we've been selected as one of the initial projects to start working with the login.gov integration. And I'd be working with that, like the development of that component and how to explore and expand this throughout other systems. Like we have the HubZone map, we have the certified case management system, and like also it's source code that SBA owns so they can leverage what we have done, improve that, and like continue the effort. Rick, the other piece that when we talk about the future and what does the future look like, login is one piece. What else are you guys looking at? You got to finish off HubZone, right? Maybe Alberto should talk about that. What, when, what's the timing around the, getting the HubZone application up and running? And then what's the next steps for you guys as you go through 2018? So start with Alberto. Right now, we our design team, who deserves more kudos, they've been working on all the questionnaire standardization and all this forms, forms cleanup that Rick was mentioning. And now we're looking forward to integrate the questionnaire part and like the case management engine, right? And apply all the lessons we have learned and the things we're testing now. We've been building some components that are actively used uh, on our certified platform, right? And we have new components like the logging uh, one that I mentioned. So we hopefully by the end of this year, we should be launching the HubSum initial application functionality. And Rick, your perspective, what else do you, do you see as the future kind of, if we have this conversation in a year, what other progress have you guys going or plan to make? Coming the rest of this year, we have additional program actions uh, on the business process side that we need to build in. So we'll be continuing to build that out for a variety of programs. We're very much hoping to move this into a continuous investment type of approach moving forward. One of the things that we've noticed with the, with the programs, the applications that we're replacing is obsolescence. One of the legacy systems is only an eight-year-old system. Costs, you know, costs a significant amount for SBA, and it's, it, it's unable to meet the needs of the business at this point uh, because of congressional mandates and changes to program statutes, et cetera, et cetera. So we want to build a system that's sustainable and that'll provide um, SBA with the enhancements that it requires to, to remain relevant for SBA moving forward. You bring up something interesting. You talk about an eight-year-old system that cost a lot, and now it's maybe not as useful as it once was and may not be useful as it, you know, it's, it's, the, it's decreasing its value. Do you guys track cost and do you track how much things are costing and how much things are potentially saved for the agency by the work you guys are doing with them? Yeah, we do. Absolutely. I mean, cost avoidance is one of our, our primary metrics, I think, uh, you could you could use. And we're working on ways to to provide longer-term projections on, on what that looks like. I think, you know, you had asked Alberto a few minutes ago one of the things that would be, you know, if you're a CIO listening to this, what would you want them to know? And I, I think the one thing I, I think I would point out is that 
software packages, if you're going to go to the trouble of building out a custom solution like this, which in a lot of cases, the business process requires it, right? You have to look at it from a continuous investment perspective. And I, I know in the past, a lot of government technology has been, let's take this, C, this CD from a major software development company and we'll just distribute that across the enterprise and that'll be it until such time as the next one rolls out, the next release rolls out. And that's really difficult to do with these custom software solutions. I mean, the scale and scope of the business process itself, it requires that constant look that, that you got to know that today exactly. it's, it's good, but tomorrow it's got to be better. Exactly. And the only, it's the only way for us to be responsive to the user input too. I mean, we, we, we've gone, uh, we've done a lot of work in setting up listening posts across our user base. And, and as Alberto had sort of alluded to before, and if we're not responsive to those people in a very timely fashion, Adoption, too, just goes right through. And they'll let you know if they're not happy. Oh, you know, you know they will. <laughs> well, talk, talk a little bit about the reaction. I want to go both internally and externally. Start internally at SBA. What's the reaction been to the new program, the new systems? So there's a lot of enthusiasm for it. As Alberto said, too, before, this, there was a failed project right before this one that I think built up a lot of hopes in SBA for these, some of these programs. And that wasn't that long ago, two or three years ago. So there's a lot of enthusiasm for what we're doing. I think the MVP approach is, is a difficult one to work through from a cultural perspective. They're used to implementations that are handed out on a CD, um, fully baked, right? But I think uh, we're starting to build some additional confidence through that internal user base as well because they're, they're starting to see their input reflected in, in the system as we continue from sprint to sprint. And those quick wins are so important. I've heard so many times from people in the digital services world and, and just project agile world, show them the progress and then you'll gain traction much more quickly. Absolutely important. And I, I mean, I think one of the biggest things that I do as a product owner is, I mean, I, I always slot time in, in our sprints for low hanging fruit and we just, we are actively looking for that low hanging fruit, that stuff that we can get out that, that fills a user need, provides high value and doesn't cost us, you know, two week a full two week sprint to get out the door. Obviously, it's more complex calculus than that, but it's it's definitely on our radar. And then externally, have you heard from users? Have you heard from companies? You mentioned the companies applying for a day program, do it in forty five minutes or thirty four minutes as the kind of end goal potential. What if? But are you hearing from government contractors who are using the program and going, wow, what a difference? Or We have. We've, we've gotten actually a, a significant amount of feedback from these firms who have applied through the systems. Again, some reporting uh, different numbers for us. Some are just emails that we get saying, wow, this is so much better. I mean, one of the things that in the previous system that they uh, had to do was they would actually go in and fill out the data in the system, print the sheet, and then stick it on that, on that page of 2,500 sheets worth of supporting documentation and mail it to an office. So just the fact that they can do the entire thing on their computer online, they're, they're thrilled. I think it's fantastic that you're getting that feedback because I know that under all these programs that there's a, a second time around that people have to go through, whether it's recertification or compliance exercise through 8A, maybe is that that's the biggest difference that people are getting that, that oh, look, these digital services are working so much better this time than that first time I did it when it was miserable. Well, there's a couple of components to that. I, I would agree with that statement. And it also provides, we're giving firms an opportunity to cross-pollinate more so than they ever have before because of that reduction of duplicative uh, information collection. So that that's one component that we're getting quite a bit of feedback on as being very positive. The other is um, 8A, for instance, is a business development program, right? I, I think everybody thinks of it as a contracting program, thinking of set-asides, et cetera. But the real goal of a, the 8A program 
is to to grow a business during their nine-year participation. And the burden on on SBA to do those annual compliance reviews on paper has gotten to the point that the analysts in the field who are actually tasked with saying, Jason Inc., let's help you, you know, market your your 8A certificate. Let's help you find 8A set-asides. Let's help you do that work. They haven't been able to do that. So one of the biggest values that we bring to the bring to the table for SBA is is getting those analysts back in the field so and working with the firms very closely to help them maximize their participations in those programs. And that takes us to a, a kind of a good place to wrap this up is, is this is all part of what the presence management agenda is going for, moving from low value to high value work. Stop looking at the, the darn paper all the time and let's help this company develop, grow, get better. I mean, and I think that's really the end goal here is is getting the low value work whether it's through automation or whether it's through simplification, that's your end goal. That's the administration's end goal, and and really, on, on that's the user, the citizens' end goal too. I think that's the path everyone's heading toward. Absolutely, Alberto. Jump to in. add to that, some of our business analysts, basically, are like business development analysts. Is actually their right, uh, correct title. So this potentially gives them more time to support businesses, right? Instead of being a, just using their time to go through piles of paper, right? And this also allows improvement for the people, the customers, and for the analysts to better support and serve these companies. Something else occurred to me as we're having this conversation is, is SBA benefiting from you guys' work beyond this, you know, the certified program, the, the working with 8A and HubZone? I mean, it's a huge program, but SBA does so much more. Alberto, maybe jump in a little bit and talk a little bit about what other, what are, what's the trickle-down effect, if you will. Yeah, so SBA has adopted agile practices across other teams and projects, right? The, there's other agile contracts that came to existence at SBA after our initial contract and learning experiences. And also, like, projects like the SBA.gov team, which is our, kind of our sister project, uh, and team at SBA adopted the same cloud platform uh, we initially built as a multi-tenant cloud platform. So all this, you know, benefits the agency adopted virtual control system, GitHub, more modern system for for all the other projects and an effort. So so there's a lot of good value and things that have been able to improve at SBA. And really, I mean, that's the goal of USDS is to you know teach the person to fish, not just give them a fish. I mean, I know, Rick, you've, that's been your experience with, with other work you've done, too? It, it has been. So uh, I was also on the VA team uh, when I first started with USDS in 2015. And a lot of the work that we did was trying to break down silos, trying to enable the, the technology, not just the technology, the, the best practices that we're bringing to government to, to permeate through all of these agencies. Very good. Rick Lee is a deputy team lead for the SBA project for USDS, and Alberto Colon Vieira is a USDS digital service engineer and product owner for the Hub Zone. Rick, Alberto, thank you so much for your time today. Thanks for thank having you. us. We have to take a break. I'm Jason Miller, and you're listening to Ask the CIO on federalnewsradio.com and 1500 AM. Profile America, Thursday, May 3rd. America's first medical college was established on this date in 1765. Students at the College of Philadelphia, now the University of Pennsylvania, were able to enroll in anatomical lectures and a class about the theory and practice of physics. The faculty modeled the instruction after the style of European predecessors. They supplemented their instruction with observation and practice at a nearby Pennsylvania hospital which was founded in 1751 by Benjamin Franklin and Thomas Bond. The addition of these courses to the curriculum made Pennsylvania College, in a technical sense, America's first university as well. Across America today, there are about 733,000 physicians and surgeons working out of some 225,000 offices and more than 5,300 hospitals. 
Profile America is beginning its 22nd year as a public service of the U.S. Census Bureau. On the Modern Software Factory Program, sponsored by CA Technologies, Otto Berkus, the Chief Technology Officer for CA Technologies, says agile development lets agencies build in, not bolt on security. The key here is to shift the application of security best practices and technologies as far to the left in the development process as possible, all the way from design through the actual development of the code itself through to deployment. To listen to the whole program, log on to federalnewsradio.com, search CA Technologies. What's the government blueprint to solve complex IT modernization and cybersecurity challenges? CA Technologies proposes a software factory that can help government gain agility from mobile to mainframe, build better applications in a shorter period of time, design cybersecurity into agency DNA, and maximize application performance. Visit CA.com today and take a tour of our modern software factory to see how we can help your agency with your digital transformation. Embed security, accelerate DevOps, ensure agility, government, rewritten by software. It's better to buy enterprise IT as a service than build on your own. That's how the Air Force plans to modernize its IT infrastructure. Listen as Don Parente, Assistant Vice President of Engineering and Architecture at AT AT&T, explains this strategy in the second of the six-part series, Delivering the Air Force Network of Tomorrow, Today. 75 to 80 percent of the government budgets, IT budgets, are dedicated towards just maintaining what you have. So back to that notion of if you build it, you live with it. When you're feeding 80 percent of your budget, 75 percent of your budget into what you've already built, you're, you kind of put yourself in a tough situation. It gets really difficult to rebuild, right? So when you get into this as a service model, you know, you get back to the economics of, well, I, I don't have to, you know, maybe feed this obsolete or older technology. I have one spend and I get always up-to-date current technology. Hear more on delivering enterprise IT as a service to the Air Force from AT&T leaders and innovators. Go to federalnewsradio.com slash airforce. How can federal agencies fortify enterprise security? By relying on a trusted partner like Fortinet Federal. Simplify cybersecurity complexity. Eliminate single-purpose applications. Break the cycle of purchase, atrophy, and purchase again. Take control from the data center to the cloud with Fortinet's integrated future-ready protection approach and keep your agency assets safe. Learn more at fortinetfederal.com. Read what's on the minds of your peers and managers. Download our free executive surveys at federalnewsradio.com. Search surveys. Welcome back. You're listening to Ask the CIO on federalnewsradio.com and 1500 AM. I'm your host, Jason Miller. In this part of the show, we shift gears. We hear from the Census Bureau and its development of its Response Outreach Area Mapper, or Rome applications, ahead of the 2020 decennial census. My guests are Deirdre Bishop, the Chief of the Geography Division, and Suzanne McArdle, a Computing Mapping Specialist in the Geography Division at the Census Bureau. Thank you both for taking the time. Let's talk about the new tool, I guess, that the Census has rolled out, is rolling out, called Rome. Talk a little bit about what is Rome and, and how does it work. This tool is a really exciting piece of technology that we're rolling out at the U.S. Census Bureau. By the time that we reach the 2020 Census, we'll have over 330 million people living in the United States, and the Census Bureau's goal is to count every single one of those people. Some of them will be easier to count than others. They'll be ready to respond the minute we send the invitation. Others will be harder to count, and that's the group that we're targeting through the use of this tool. This tool allows users to pull up a map on their computer and at the lowest level of geography, the census tract, be able to see where the hardest to count population will be residing. 
using that tool, we can conduct outreach to encourage those people to self-respond. And the big difference with Rome, for instance, as a tool is before you may have kind of understood or kind of known where, where those hard to reach areas were, but this will actually be because of GIS, which I know Suzanne will get to in a second, this will give you a more accurate, more data than maybe you've ever had before. We started thinking about this idea 20 years ago. We knew that community leaders had information about where the hard to count people were. We put together a tool called the Planning Database that compiled information statistics from the Census Bureau, now from the American Community Survey. And we know that the tool is going to be used throughout the community to help address the hard to count populations. In the past, we had to print maps every single day and send those maps out to our partnership specialists and our offices. Today, you can access the information in real time through the use of Roam. And that's through a tablet, a handheld computer, or any of the above? All of the above. Excellent. Let me turn to Suzanne now. You sound like you, based just on your title, you got to do all the hard work <laughs> and really take the data and figure out how to, how to make the data work. Talk a little bit about your, your efforts around applying the GIS data. A large group of people at the U.S. Census Bureau have actually gone uh, through to be able to put this tool together. The census planning database that Deirdre just mentioned has existed for a number of years, and we decided to take that database and make it accessible in a mapping gateway right out of the bat. So basically, folks can come in and see a picture of a map. That part didn't exist in the planning database itself. But now we've created a, a data analysis tool. So it's also an exploratory tool. So you can look across the country to see where the hard-to-count areas are, click on a census tract, drill down to the socioeconomic and demographic data that makes up that neighborhood profile, and learn a little bit more about why that particular area might be hard to count. Uh, there's also a data table that people can filter and uh, create their own queries to be able to limit the number of census tracts uh, that they're interested in. So you answer one, one question, this is based on census tracts versus let's say zip codes, right? But the, I guess the other piece of it is, was this data already available and the difference now is the technology is better or is this maybe new data because the technology is better? Both of those things. So the census planning database has sort of transformed across the years that it's been publicly available on an annual basis. And with this particular tool, the low response score is something that only lives in this planning database. The planning database brings together some American Community Survey five-year estimates as well as 2010 operational data like mail return rate. So the, the most unique part about the planning database is that the low response score lives in it. So we decided to build the map with that low response score base and then include all of these really neat uh, research and data estimates on top of that uh, to be able to make that happen. Generally, is, is this something that's fairly easy to use? People can, you know, census takers can uh, easily pick it up like, like they would do, I'll uh, use unfortunately, you know, the ESRI tools or, or Google Maps, or is it something that takes a little bit more to get used to? Right, I think you just hit on a good point with Google Maps. A lot of people in this day and age are getting really familiar with web mapping applications in general. So in order to be able to use the tool, pop it open, the exploratory piece of it is very easy. Some of the data uh, analysis portion is a little bit more difficult and gets into the, the weeds of something that might not be as intuitive for a general data user, but we do have a user guide available right on census.gov slash Rome, that's R-O-A-M, and we have a data dictionary there and some other resources that can make this really easy for people. Let me turn back to Deirdre. 
this tool, where are you at with it? Was it's developed, and then is it being tested? Is it past the testing stage, and and you're ready to to begin using it? Give me an update. Uh, you can log on to the computer today and use the tool. We've done the rollout, we've done the testing, all of the associated infrastructure is sitting behind the scenes, and we are ready to have people start using this tool. Is it for beyond just census takers? Because it's, it's community partners. So what you're asking is for people in those hard to reach communities to step up and say, okay, check if your community is there and then what can you do to help us or, or give me, or, or am, I, am I making too much out of it? No, you're right on the mark. Yeah. We rolled this out to our national advisory committee, the people who advised the census, and it was very well received. Immediately thereafter, we started rolling this out to state and local government officials. We then placed the tool online, live, and we are now encouraging community leaders advocates within the various communities to access the tools and start planning for the 2020 census now. Look at the data. Where are the census tracts that have the hardest to count people? Go talk with those people now and stress the importance of responding to the 2020 census. What do you hope the type of impact this will have? Meaning if previously in the 2010 census, the response rate in hard to reach areas, let's, let's say I'm making this up, was 12%. Do you hope to reach 20%? Do you hope to reach 80%? Give me a sense of, of what kind of goals you have for this tool. We hope this tool will help increase self-response among the hardest to count populations. We want the, communica the community leaders to get out there using this tool to help identify those that will be less likely to respond and we want them to encourage those people to respond. We haven't put a number uh, to how much we believe this will increase self-response, but we do believe that it will help point things in the right direction. Let me turn back to Suzanne. You, you mentioned tools a couple times because the, the key is not just the data, but the tools that ride on top of the data that make the data valuable. Uh, you mentioned uh, the filtering tool. Are there some other tools that the people in the hard-to-reach communities can start using? Yeah, absolutely. So one of the things that makes the uh, Rome tool so unique is that we have been able to expose the map data and the estimates data to the public. So different third-party folks, uh, a number of states have their own GIS GIS shops, and they are able to build their own applications on top of the Rome base. So the low response score map and all of the data available in Rome can be put into their own applications for different uh, local community points of interest to be added on top, youth organizations, faith-based uh, organizations, the location of all of those. So we are already familiar with a number of states that are going to be taking our base data and making their own applications around it to increase their local response rates. And that must be very fulfilling because, you know, then they're finding the value in the tools and the data. Give, give me a sense. I mean, did you expect that to happen or is that maybe a byproduct that you're like, oh, that's a, that's a nice byproduct? Deirdre mentioned earlier one of our national advisory committees, and I think that group specifically was really excited about the ability to take our source data uh, since there was so much effort and time spent in building that source data. And uh, that can basically serve as the foundation for all of these other applications and tools that people are working on to increase their local response rates. Deirdre, let me turn back to you because we've talked a lot about the census, but there's a bigger picture issue going on here. Talk a little bit about the, the what does this tool mean for the, the bigger GIS community. As chief of the geography division at the U.S. Census Bureau, I hope this tool helps demonstrate nationwide the powerful things that can happen when you combine geographic data, geospatial data, with statistical data 
to help make informed decisions. In the past, it was up to the people at the Census Bureau to spread that word. This tool is going to help people within the community target those that are hardest to count and help us increase response to the census. And just briefly, did you guys build this internally? Did you have contractor support? Did you have any help to, to get this done? And maybe Suzanne, help, out, help me out. We were able to build this tool completely internally uh, using Portal for ArcGIS. It was very simple once we had the idea and the design uh, to execute the actual building of the application and push it out the door. And I imagine then the return on investment can be huge, considering if you do this internally, there's no contractor costs or minimal contractor costs. And the hope is that the, the better response rate will make the census more valuable. Uh, that, that's the end result, right? Our goal is to get as many people to self-respond to the census so that we don't have to go out and knock on those doors. That is the most expensive part when we have to go and do non-response follow-up. That's all the time we have for today. My guests were Deirdre Bishop, the Chief of the Geography Division, and Suzanne McCardle, a Computing Mapping Specialist in the Geography Division at the U.S. Census Bureau. We just heard about the Census Bureau's decennial 2020 effort to develop the Response Outreach Area Mapper, or Rome application. I'm Jason Miller. Thanks for listening. Tune in next Thursday to hear more from the U.S. Digital Service and its work with the Health and Human Services Department. You've been listening to Ask the Chief Information Officer on federalnewsradio.com and 1500 AM. Subscribe to this show on Podcast One or iTunes.